Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're talking about Britain's referendum on whether to stay in or leave the European Union. David Cameron, Britain's Prime Minister, has announced the details of Britain's draft deal to renegotiate its relationship with the EU. But where does that leave the debate? Joining me on the line is George Parker, our political editor in the UK, and from Brussels, Alex Barker, our correspondent there. George, first, David Cameron announced the deal. The reaction in the press has been pretty negative. Do you think it's gone badly for him so far? Well, pretty negative is a polite way of putting it. I mean, it's been absolutely appalling. If you uh, glance at any newsstand this morning, you'd have seen really critical headlines on, on most newspapers, including The Sun, one of um, Britain's best-read newspapers, calling it a steaming pile of manure. Um, so, to be frank, it was something that Number 10 and David Cameron were expecting. Britain's press is notoriously virulently Eurosceptic. There are a few more supportive accounts of the details of the deal that he's secured in outline with Donald Tusk, the European Council president. But the point is, I think he was expecting this. He's been speaking in the House of Commons today, addressing his own backbenchers today, who are equally nonplussed and in some cases angry with what he's come back with. So he's got a hostile reception, but it's a long game. I think he was rather rather braced for it. Does that reflect the fact that basically these negotiations haven't gone that well for Britain and that compared to what uh, Cameron may have hoped for a year, two years ago, he hasn't got very much? Well, I think the negotiations have been reasonably successful on his own terms. Um, David Cameron deliberately set himself a set of negotiating objectives, which he thought he could be achieved. He knew that if he conducted a classic EU negotiation where you aim for 10 and you end up with 5, that would be a total disaster because the difference between 10 and 5 would be basically the the focus of the no campaign. So he aims pretty low, and he got pretty low. But nevertheless, I think there's some reasonably useful achievements in there. I think one of the things he's done is he's laid down some ground rules about the way the European Union will operate in an era where the Eurozone is becoming increasingly powerful and to protect Britain's position as a country outside the Eurozone. And he's got some language which I think he can just about get away with in terms of restricting the payment of benefits to migrant workers, something he can take to the country, even though that's been rather taken apart by some some parts of the press this morning. And Alex, what's the uh, reaction in Brussels? Do people feel that uh, Cameron's got too much, too little? It's been pretty muted, actually. The um, press reaction on the on the continent certainly uh, has been uh, more about Cameron walking away with something rather than uh, leaving empty-handed. In terms of the political reaction, there's a lot of the opponents to measures such as the, the benefit cap for migrants in Eastern Europe have stayed pretty quiet. Um, they think that the fix that's been found with an emergency break, a temporary gift for Cameron, is something that they could live with at least and uh, that wouldn't stir too much discontent in their uh, own domestic politics. So at the moment you're entering a two-week period now where the final negotiations will take place. There'll be squabbling, there'll be some drama, there's some headroom for Cameron to kind of come out with some surprises. But broadly the main member states are behind this and it's 
deliberately being calibrated in a way where it's unlikely to be knocked back. That's very interesting. But you suggest that Cameron himself may be looking for uh, further gains, if, if, if I can put it that way. I mean, what kind of thing? Well, there's plenty of details in brackets in the text itself. So we don't know how long the emergency break on benefits is going to last. We don't know whether this is all going to be put into treaties at a later stage. Um, He could um, improve the language, uh, exempting Britain from ever closer union. Uh, He could toughen up the the safeguards there are for non-Euro countries like Britain to give them a better way of raising objections and taking it to a higher level. All of these issues will, they pick over the details of this, will definitely flare up. But Cameron's main judgment was really, is this enough for me to sell at home? And now that he's kind of taken the, the beating uh, from the Eurosceptic press, it's unlikely that he's going to walk away from this negotiation because X or Y detail isn't quite enough. And it's probably likely that there are a few little rabbits still left for them to uh, present on the night of the summit itself. And George, I mean, stepping back a bit, let's say, uh, as Alex implies, that this is basically the deal and it will basically go through. And I think most people are now, correct me if I'm wrong, expecting a referendum in June, towards the end of June. How do you think this uh, sets the background for their campaign? Well, I think the important thing about this deal this, that we think David Cameron's going to do at this summit in, on February the 18th to 19th, it's, it's about setting the tone of the campaign. It's about basically him being able to say, look, we've got some legitimate concerns in the UK Um, on things like migration, the power of the Eurozone. I've gone to Brussels, people have taken me seriously, and they've come up with quite a complicated document uh, which recognises some of our concerns. I think that's the important thing. I think then we will move on extremely quickly away from this draft deal we've been discussing and onto the much bigger question, which is basically the campaign that Cameron will be fighting, which is that Britain's place in Europe is vital for our economic security, for our national security and for our influence in the world. So at the moment, there's a lot of haggling over the detail of Mr. Tusk's paper. But very quickly, I think we'll move on to a much bigger uh, canvas, if you like, about Britain's relationship with Europe. And I get the sense that the, the mood in number 10 the day after these terrible headlines is quite bullish. As, as Alex was saying there, he's taken the hit and now he thinks he's through the worst of it and he can move on. And they're particularly reassured that there's no compelling case yet being put by the other side of the argument, the, the respective no campaigns and their other incoherent at the moment, um, haven't been putting out a single message. They don't have a strong single figure leading the out campaign. And David Cameron, I think, is looking pretty confident at the moment. The polls don't look too bad for him at the moment. I think he thinks the case is just starting to be made. And there's a sense in number 10 that even the critics within the cabinet who don't like the look of this deal, there's almost a sense, look, if you don't like it, get out. So they're quite bullish, much more bullish than you might have expected if you looked at the newspaper headlines this morning. Tell me about the polls, though, because, you know, they seem to me to be all over the place. I saw a couple which suggested that the Leave campaign were actually marginally ahead. And then the most recent one I saw saw like a 20-point lead to stay in. It depends a lot whether it's done by the phone or by internet polling. I think a better guide probably is to have a look at the bookmakers' odds, which are very strongly in favour of, of Britain staying in. I think David Cameron's view is that if you're inclined to vote for Britain to leave, you've probably made up your mind by now. And the pro, the remain camp, the in camp, believe that there are sort of about a third of the electorate in the middle who are the people in play. There's probably a third who are in on any account, and there are about a third who will vote to leave anyway. And that middle third, they believe, can be influenced by arguments, particularly about the economy. And they think virtually all of those people are in play, that they can be wooed over to the in camp, provided 
you can show that the EU provides benefits to the UK, particularly economic benefits, and also the, the key factor, I suppose, of the in-campaign, which is fear, the fear of what lies outside the European Union if Britain was to vote to leave. And just one final thing on the polls. One thing that was really striking to me, if it can be relied upon, is the huge difference in attitudes depending on how old you are. Yeah, that's a that's a fascinating thing. And um, we've had a debate in this country about whether 16 and 17-year-olds should be allowed to vote in this referendum because it will affect their future you know, their, their, their own personal future is a long time into this century. Uh, and as you allude to it, the, the young people are much more inclined to be supportive of Britain's membership of the European Union and support for Britain's EU membership declines almost in a straight line from your 20s back to, right through to, to the elderly, to elderly people. And it's no coincidence that UKIP, the sort of populist anti-European party, draws a disproportionate amount of its support from older people. Um, some of whom actually have direct experience of the last war. So, yeah, it's a real generational divide. I think it's one of the fascinating aspects of this debate. And, Alex, I mean, how much patience is there in Brussels for for this whole debate? Are people thinking uh, that it's a distraction? Um, or do they think, well, actually, although they prefer it wasn't happening now, they re- recognise its importance? There is the recognition that Brexit would be a real disaster for the union, especially at a time of, of multiple crises. Uh, the message it would send in terms of uh, the political integration that the project stands for going into reverse in terms of the unity and the potential for kind of pro-European politicians to see off Eurosceptic threats in their own countries. It would be really, really quite seismic. And for that reason, they have spent considerable amount of time on the British issues. Uh, whether they would put these on a par with some of the other crises that the union is dealing with at the moment is another question. They are certainly impatient in terms of the amount of time that has been devoted. They want this over as quickly as possible. And I think that, in a way, plays to uh, Mr Cameron's advantage because they won't want another summit on this. They uh, want it finished as quickly as possible uh, on uh, the night of the uh, 18th. But Alex, the 18th sounds like it's going to be quite a packed night because I was talking to some German diplomats and they were saying that this is also the summit in which they finally hope to achieve a pan-European deal on refugees, which is obviously a crucial issue for them. Can they really deal with everything at the same summit? Well, they're hoping uh, at the moment to deal with Britain on the Thursday evening and then move on to migration on the Friday in the day. And they're willing to extend the time of, of the summit, I think, because it really would be uh, ludicrous for them to get together the 28 leaders across this block and not talk about the crisis that's um, uh, uprooting so much politics. And uh, as you said, they're looking at mid-March as really the the last moment uh, to test whether a European solution, as they've been looking at the moment, works. And uh, and after that, they will have to be considering some much more drastic solutions. So finally, George, the scenario you painted is that, OK, Cameron's had a rough day in the press, but basically... The Downing Street and the Tories are pretty confident that they can hold this referendum and win it. But thinking about what might go wrong, do you think the biggest wild card is this refugee crisis and the way it might affect uh, British views of Europe? Well, I mean, we all know that lots of things can go wrong in referendums. And um, I can't remember who it was. It was one of the French presidents who said that the voters always ask, answer a different questions of the one that's actually on a ballot paper in a referendum. So you're right, the refugee crisis is the one thing that's Downing Street is most worried about the idea that for weeks, week after week, the television screens will be full of the 
of um, refugees crossing to making them a dangerous crossing to Europe and uh, the terrible suffering that's going on there. I think that that would be one of the worst backdrops for a British referendum. Um, but other things could come into play, of course. You know, anything that makes the government unpopular in the intervening weeks, and we expect the referendum now to be held on June the 23rd. That's still four months away. Lots of things could happen. But you're right. At the moment, uh, I would say that Downing Street and David Cameron are confident, but they certainly don't think it's in the bag. George, thank you very much indeed. Thanks also to Alex Barker in Brussels. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you might like to try our FT Politics show, which is presented by me, Sebastian Payne, the FT's digital comment editor. Each week, I discuss the latest developments in British politics with the FT's political commentators and correspondents. You can find the latest episode at ft.com forward slash podcasts. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Saturday morning.